There's an insert in your bulletin this morning on the, the yellow sheet. The yellow sheet, if you want to turn to the one, the, the first page, which says, what does the Reformation have to do with us as Grace Baptist Church? If you take a look at that, because at the top of that first page, you'll see a picture of what is called the Reformation Wall. The Reformation Wall. This is at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. And the Reformation Wall, which was made in about 1907, somewhere around there, is 100 meters long. So that makes it a little bit longer than a football field. And it depicts several statues and bas-reliefs carved in stone, which portray many of the main events and prominent individuals of the Protestant Reformation, as we've talked about, began, at least kind of officially, 500 years ago this Tuesday. The date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the chapel door at Wittenberg and the world was changed. And I want you to read the insert at some point because on the back side, you'll see a picture of one of the statues and uh, that is of Roger Williams. Now, not the Roger Williams who plays the piano and went to my alma mater at Idaho State University. Did you know Roger Williams, the piano player, was uh, a local Idaho boy? But... The Roger Williams, who in 1638, 1638, founded the very first Baptist church in America, Providence, Rhode Island. And of course, he also founded the colony of Rhode Island and who is best remembered as the originator of the principle of separation in church and state, church and state, the separation of the 13 original colonies. Rhode Island was the only one, either officially or unofficially, that did not have a state-sponsored church of all the colonies, whether it was Anglican, also Church of England, Roman Catholic, or Congregational. Rhode Island was the only one that your taxes didn't pay the pastor's salary, in other words. Now, the motto of the Reformation engraved behind the main statues is post tenebras lux. In Latin, that means after darkness light. After darkness light. For over a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation, the spiritual darkness in Europe is it's almost indescribable. There's a reason that this time used to be called the Dark Ages. Now they like medieval times or Middle Ages. But it used to be called the Dark Ages because man-made traditions had kept the masses of people in bondage and in fear for centuries. And now during Reformation, the traditions and the lies were exposed for what they really were. It's a basic spiritual principle. Light dispels darkness. When the light of God's word shines into places of spiritual and cultural darkness, it transforms people. It transforms families. It transforms nations. It's not a matter how long the darkness has persisted, John Sampson writes. When light appears, darkness like a hostile renegade, usurper of the throne, must submit, bow its head, and walk away in shame, light dispels darkness. The entrance, uh, entrance of God's word brings light. Now, darkness can be described as the shared experience of people without light. Darkness is where people are living without light. And such was the case before the Protestant Reformation. The Bible was not known. In its place, religious superstition, tradition and falsehood reigned. And the Reformation brought God's word and the gospel back into the hands of the masses, literally, in their own language. 
Entire nations held captive by the powers of darkness were now exposed to the truth. And dramatic change occurred. Now outside the book of Acts, as we sing, <laughs> come Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the book of Acts, there has not been a greater move of the Holy Spirit in the history of church than the Reformation. Our world would never be the same. The Bible came to be read in the common language of the, of the people. The great central truths of the Bible were proclaimed. They were recovered and often at great cost to those who had came to embrace them. Literally thousands lost their lives just so they could have their own Bible in their own language, in their own hand. So this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, we come to the great central truth of the Bible. It is also the truth that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. In these verses, Paul answers the age-old question. It was asked several times, I think four times in the book of Job. How can a person be right with God? How can a person be right with God? Living in a monastery, Martin Luther struggled with this question, trying to do everything he could to deal with his own sin and guilt, trying to assuage the anger of God, trying to become righteous so he could be right with God, who he saw as an angry God, failing miserably to do that until his studies in Paul's letter to the Romans. He came to know, he came to believe that the just shall live by faith. The truth of God's word in those five words in Romans changed the world. So please turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I want to point out two words at the beginning of the 21st verse. Romans chapter 3, 21st verse, page 1383. Two words. Are you there? The first two words of the 21st verse. But now. But now, I think they're the same in every translation. But now, these words are akin to after darkness light. But now, for 64 verses in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has been describing the darkness and the sin in the heart of every human being. Paul says that for everyone who rejects God, which is everybody, their foolish heart was darkened. They lived in darkness. They were futile in their speculations. And in our text this morning, Romans chapter 3, look at verse 23. Paul sums up the previous 64 verses with verse 23. Familiar words. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how can you be right with God when you're part of the everybody? Everyone has sinned and falls short. And everyone, therefore, lives under the wrath of the holy God. But now, before we get to it in Romans, I want you to turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two, verse 12, the second chapter of Ephesians, the 12th verse, page 1430. Because Paul here has been speaking in Ephesians. About the darkness that the Ephesians lived before they came to Christ who they were before they were in Christ. And then in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. Don't let those words pass unnoticed. Everybody who is outside of Christ, who is everybody who has not received Christ, he says to the Ephesians, you lived a life where you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from all of God's promises. They didn't apply to you. They were not for you. And you had no hope. And you were without God in the world. Complete, utter helplessness. Not thing one you could do about it. Every person in this world is in only one of two different places. Either he or she is in Christ or he or she is separated from the promises of God and is without hope and without God in this world. Every person here this morning is in only one or two places. Either you're in Christ or you're not with all that goes along with that. Pick door number one, door number two. <laughs> Most people, what? Anyway, and all the promises of God. So how can a person be right with God? How can a person be right with God? In verse 13 of the second chapter of Ephesians, we see those two beautiful words again. Two beautiful words. Verse 13. See that? But now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we can go back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, to what has been called the greatest paragraph ever written. The word of God, which was used to change the world on more than one occasion. You see, all human beings, what Paul has been saying of, of every race, every rank, of every creed, every culture, Jew and Gentiles, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious, are without any exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That was the terrible human predicament described in Romans in the 64 verses that began with Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and go all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. There was no ray of hope, no flicker of hope, no prospect of, of rescue. Paul made his point. But in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, Paul suddenly breaks in. God himself has intervened in human history. After the long dark night, the sun has risen. A new day has dawned and the world is flooded with light. The light that has come into the world. And what humankind could not do, what we could not do for ourselves, could never do. Not thing one we can do about it. Make ourselves right with God. God intervenes in history and in our lives. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been revealed. It's a fresh revelation. Focusing on Christ in his cross. And so this morning I want us to see two ways. That God's righteousness is revealed. First of all God's righteousness is revealed in God's word. And secondly, God's righteousness is revealed in his grace. And we'll just kind of scratch the surface of that second point this morning. But in order to understand what it means that God's righteousness has been revealed or manifested, we first must understand what is meant by the righteousness of God. The main issue that we all must face is how to be right with a righteous God. How do we know that when we stand before a righteous God, we're going to be right with him? 
How do we know that we are right standing with God right now? Now think about this for a moment. If I were to ask you right now, take out pencil and paper and write, I am right with God because. I am right with God because. And I pause there because your eternity depends on how you answer that because. Now, when we present the gospel, we're apt to talk about God's love and mercy, right? And, and that's okay. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. That's the same truth here, but from the love of God point of view, the perspective. Here in Romans 3, Paul's mainly concerned to talk about God's righteousness and our sin, our lack of righteousness. He mentions righteousness in these verses. In verse 21, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 26. Plus, we see the word justify in verses 24 and 26. And we see the word just in verse 26. All these words to describe one word in the Greek language. <laughs> in the Greek, all these words come from the same Greek root word. Basically, Paul uses the same root word seven times in six verses. Is Paul serious about this or what? So what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be in right standing with God? The Greek word is diakosuni, which is most often translated righteousness. Uh, when it's used of a person, it's translated just. When it's used as a verb, it's called, it's used as a, to, to make just or to, to make righteous. And the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, this won't be on the test, but it's helpful to understand it, is sedek, sedek. And it means really the same thing. So to understand what this word means, let me take you back to the Old Testament where we can pull out its meaning. Go back to the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus. And as you go to Leviticus, I can hear the pages turning. I can see the dust puffing out of there at the same time. <laughs> How long has it been since you've been in the book of, of Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35. The 19th chapter of Leviticus, the 35th verse, page 141, which is a real low number. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35. In Leviticus, Moses is giving the law. The word Leviticus comes from the word Levi, the priestly tribe. He's giving, he's giving the law. And, and here Moses is commanding the people related to how they are to deal justly or righteously in their dealings with one another. In this case, in buying and selling. Now, in order to sell something, they would do it the same way we do it today or, or used to do it. They would balance it on the scales. So what they had was what they considered a standard weight, a stone that weighed a certain amount of what they called shekels. A shekel was a unit of weight. And so they would have a weight that would say would weigh 20, 20 shekels. And they would put the stone on one side of the scales and they would put the goods on the other side. And then that was 20 shekels worth of whatever they were selling. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. And the problem was that unscrupulous merchants had one weight for selling and they had another weight for buying. And so they would buy at a different weight than what they would sell. 
And that was just, you know, very common, very popular. And uh, so that brings us to Leviticus verse uh, 35 of, of the 19th chapter. The law says, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall do no wrong. Now, not only did they have stone weights for use on the scales, they also had weights of, of measurements and capacity. And, and so what they had was all call, also called an ephah. You might remember an ephah of flour. That's all the widow had left when she took in, uh, in, uh, in Elijah. And, and so... Uh, and, but that lasted miraculously for a long time. But an ephah was like our bushel basket. It's a measurement of certain. They also had what's called the hen, which was a measurement of, of liquid. I don't know about what size it was, but we have the gallon, we have the quart, we have the liter. Uh, it was a measurement of that. And so he says, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measurement of weight or capacity. Now look at verse 36. Here you see the word just, if you have... Same translation I'm using four times. He says, you shall have just or righteous. There's our word. Sedek. Righteous balances, just or righteous weights. A just or righteous ephah and a just or righteous in. Or the liquid measurement. Why? You know, it's interesting that God would add this one after this particular one. Because I am the Lord, your God, and you were brought out of the land of Egypt. Boy, God says, hmm. you know why? Because God is a righteous God. God is a just God. And this hits at his very character when we're not righteous. The weights, the standard of measure, the stone that they use to balance the scales is to be just or righteous, which means according to standard. That's what righteousness or just means, according to standard, the exacting standard. In our government, we have the division of weights and measures. And if you go to the gas pump, you'll see their inspection sticker on the gas pump. They sometimes they give that over to the state. But, uh, you know, they test the pump on occasion and they make sure it dispenses a gallon of gasoline. But what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness has no deviation whatsoever. You know, because we live in an imperfect world, we talk about tolerances, tolerances. When the NASA engineers build the Mars lander, the specs allow for certain tolerances. The intricate pieces are all to fit together. But since, for example, a titanium rod cannot be honed to exact one ten thousandth of an inch, they allow for tolerances. So every piece, millions of pieces that make for a rocket, that make for a Mars lander, allow for certain tolerances. So do our automobiles. They allow for certain tolerances, how all the parts fit in the engine and everything else goes together. And if you stretch the limits of those tolerances in almost every piece, you get what's called a lemon. <laughs> that's why we have lemons. The tolerances were pushed to the limits, not by their fault, but that's just the way it happened. And the problem is that the righteousness of God has no tolerances. God's righteousness is absolute, no deviation whatsoever. And God requires the same righteousness that he possesses. Jesus gave us the standard when he said, you are to be what? Perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's righteousness. 
according to the standard. God's righteousness refers to his absolute holiness, his absolute separateness, as it were, from all that is sin and all that is wrong. No tolerances. The problem is, and I'm really glad that it's God's problem, because we as human beings can never solve it. The problem is we can never be right with God. We can never be according to the standard. We can have no we can never have no deviation, no tolerances. And I'm glad that God solved the problem because we can't solve it. The only way is for God to solve that problem. And that's what we call the good news. Remember that Paul's already shown in Romans that no one could be made righteous by keeping the law of God. No one can be made righteous by keeping the two great commandments to love God and to love others. We, we never do it perfectly. No one can live up to the Ten Commandments perfectly. But now, but now, apart from the law, Paul's right, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Even though the righteousness of God can't be achieved by keeping the law, Paul goes on to add that it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 21 again of, of Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now the phrase the law and the prophets refers to the entire Old Testament. Uh, that's the way, same way we would say, you know, the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is... All of what we have in our Old Testament. That's all of God's written word in the Old Testament. Now the law and the prophets, in the way that they witnessed to it, they affirmed God's absolute standard of righteousness. No tolerances. They showed mankind's complete inability to live according to the standard, but it still set the standard. So day in and day out, as we've talked in our study of the book of Hebrews, they, they had to go to the temple. They had to make sacrifices for this, that, and the other thing. Whenever you sinned, you had to go to the temple, make the appropriate sacrifice. That was a covering for your sin. And then when you left the temple, you got cut off in traffic. You sinned again, and you had to go back and do the same thing all over again. That's the way it worked. So watch out when you leave the parking lot <laughs> this morning at the church. Now, the Jews had a great reverence for the scriptures, as, as they should have, but most of them failed to realize that although the scriptures were divinely inspired, the scriptures in themselves had no power to save. No power to save. Because the law has no way to make a person righteous. You search the scriptures, Jesus told a group of Jewish listeners, because you think that in them you have eternal life. They thought it was in the scriptures that you find eternal life. But Jesus said, what? These bear witness of me. I would love to have been on that, that road to Emmaus on that Lord's Day morning after Jesus rose from the dead. and He's walking with the disciples and he opened the law in the prophets, the book of Moses, and showed himself at every single place in the Old Testament. I hope there's reruns in heaven because I want to get some of that. But in other words, the law and the prophets did not show them how to achieve their own righteousness. But it pointed to the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who himself, who himself would provide the righteousness that God demands of men. 
So that brings us to the second point of the outline. First of all, God's righteousness is revealed in God's word. And secondly, God's righteousness is revealed through his grace. We'll just be able to barely get into this one this morning. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 3, 22nd verse. The righteousness of God has been revealed, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness is through faith for all who believe. Put another way in the book of the same truth in the book of Romans. It's that biblical call of the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. The righteousness shall live by faith. The righteous person. How's a person justified? Is it by works of the law or is it by faith? In a little bit, we're going to come back to what it means that righteousness of God is through faith. But uh, I want to show you the reason why it can't be by the works of the law. It's stated in that famous statement in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember what that word translated sin means? We've talked about this a little bit. It's the Greek word harmatia, which means missing the mark. It's an archery term. The archer pulls back the string on the bow. He lets the arrow fly. If it misses the target, he has missed the mark. That is the word that Paul uses here. We talked about another one in Sunday school class, which means stepping across the line, or it's usually translated trespass. This one, it's missing the mark. And what is the mark? The mark is perfection. You hit the center of the bullseye every time, time and time again, and you always hit it. The mark is perfection because the mark is what? The glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Everybody falls short. Now, suppose we went down to the pier on the coast of San Diego. And our ex-San Diego dwellers are not here today, but uh, they'll have to hear about this. We go down to the pier in San Diego. And the goal, the mark, is to run down the pier, jump off the pier, and jump all the way to Hawaii. Okay? Now, some would give it the good old college try. They might even train for weeks for it. I know guys like that. They run down the pier after all this training. They let themselves go. Man, they go out 20, 30 feet. They still fall short. They miss the mark. Now, someone might make themselves a set of wings. <laughs> and so have you seen those old films of where people are trying to make the flying machine? <laughs> I just love that. They still do that. They still have contests for that today where they run down the pier and, and see if they, can, they get going. You know, they, they flap along the best they can. They're doing all the good things. They're doing all the right things, they think. And, and they go off. And because of the weight of the machinery, they, they don't go anywhere. And there are those who stumble and fall and just kind of roll off the edge before they even get there. The point is, no one can do it. All have sinned. No one lives according to the standard. There is none righteous. No, not one. Everyone falls short. So what is the righteousness of God that has been revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for those who believe? How do we obtain that righteousness and why is it good news? Well, we've had enough bad news for today. Let's let's get to the good news. Now, we're going to come back to Romans chapter three on the second part of our outline next week. We ran out of time before we ran out of outline, so I'm going to skip the rest of the outline and, and go to something else. I want you to drop down 
to chapter 4 of Romans, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. And see the example of Abraham, who is often called the father of faith. Look at, look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. It's hypothetical, really, it's sarcastic. Paul gets very sarcastic at times because nobody's justified by works. He spent three chapters showing that. But if Abraham was justified by works, man, he'd have something to brag about. But not before God, but not before God. And then Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and uh, verse 3 of Romans chapter 4, the third verse of Romans chapter 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Something about faith, something about believing God is credited to us as righteousness. This is the great truth of justified by faith. The just shall live by faith. Justification means to declare righteous, to declare righteous. Now, when a person stands in a court of law today, Charges are made against the defendant by the prosecutor. The defense attorney tries to refute those charges. And then the jury will find the defendant what? Guilty or not guilty. Now, when it comes to God's court, we got to kind of put some of that picture aside because that, that's not the way it works in God's court. And it doesn't work that way in an understanding of God's word of what it means to be justified or declared righteous. Why? Because everybody, everyone who stands before God for judgment is what? Condemned. There is none righteous. No, not one. Everybody has missed the mark. God declares everyone is guilty. Every single one. No one is not guilty. At no point, even through faith in Jesus Christ, is the sinner declared not guilty. Why? Because nobody is innocent. Pastor, I thought you said we're going to get to the good news. This is great news. This is the good news. You see, God is able to do what we can't do for ourselves. That is turn a guilty person into a justified person. It has nothing to do with innocent or guilt. Turn a guilty person into a justified person. A justified person is a guilty person whom God declares to be righteous it's the declaration of God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. On account of him believing God, God declared Abraham righteous, justified. And here's the point. It's the point of the gospel. All sinners can be right with God through his free grace by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ and the redemption in him. You know, since all since. Everybody has sinned, all have sinned. It would be pointless for Paul to write about a way to being right with God that did not apply to all sinners, right? Follow my logic here, because ironically, it is those who do not see themselves as sinners who miss the way of God's righteousness. In other words, to get God's righteousness through Christ, you have to what? Plead guilty. We plead guilty. That's what we do. See, if you don't think you're sick, you won't go to the doctor. Or you won't take your medicine. We have to accept the diagnosis that we are sinners, guilty. We plead guilty. Therefore, we will welcome the cure of the free grace of Jesus Christ. 
Now, to understand this good news is both simple and yet it's profound. It's easy enough for a child to grasp (laughs) and yet deep enough to evoke thousands of pages of deep theology. To be justified means that God declares us to be righteous. It does not mean to make somebody righteous. We don't clean up their life and make them a righteous person. All of a sudden they're in right standing with God. That's that's a whole nother system of a whole nother religion. But it's to declare him as righteous. You see, this is the biblical truth that was rediscovered in the Protestant Reformation. And we'll look more at, at Romans chapter three next week. But I want to jump ahead and how this works in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. So turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians for a moment. First Corinthians chapter one. The 30th verse. The 30th verse of first Corinthians chapter one, page 1398. Where in this section in 1 Corinthians, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of who they were and how they lived before they received Christ. And Paul writes in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But by, but by, almost like but now, (laughs) but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and what? And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ became to us through our faith in him. What? Righteousness. We're back to that great exchange that I love to talk about so much. When Jesus died on the cross, all of our sin, all our iniquity, every crummy, stupid, evil, dumb thing, sin we ever did was laid on Jesus Christ. And he paid the penalty for our sin. And what's the exchange? When we by faith receive him and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, he becomes our what? Our righteousness. Our righteousness. He takes on all our sin. We receive his perfect righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when the father sees you, if you are in Christ, if you have received Christ, when the father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He's looking down at us right now. And as he looks at us who have received Jesus Christ in faith, he sees nothing but righteousness. In Christ, he declares you righteous. You are justified. You're declared righteous. And in Christ, you meet God's exacting standard. No tolerances needed. Because in Jesus, there are no tolerances. In Christ Jesus, you have been recreated according to standard. Therefore, as anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. What? Behold, the new has come. You have perfectly met the standard. You stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How are we right with God? Because by faith in believing in Christ, it is credited to us as righteousness. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I want to close with a psalm of praise from the lips of Isaiah. I don't want you to turn to it. (laughs) Don't turn to it. Because I want you to hear these words. I want you to listen to these words. 
It's in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, for your future reference. Don't turn to it. And I want you to picture these words. And if it's, it helps you to close your eyes and think prayerfully about these, please do this. Because I want you to make these words your own. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God. Why? Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Can you picture that? He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Then it says, he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness. The Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Can you picture that? Do you know that? Do you know that? Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that what we couldn't do for ourselves, you have done for us in Jesus Christ. That we didn't have to ask you to reduce your standards or to do something that uh, would not be in keeping with, with your holiness, with your righteousness. But Father... Even before you created us and you made us, you determined in eternity that Jesus, the Son of God, would die for us. That through faith we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, there are no words that express our gratitude and love for you. That you demonstrated your love for us in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Father, I thank you that those of us who are in Christ, who have received him and know him, will stand before you one day in the glories of heaven clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for all eternity, that we might be in fellowship with you, that we might live in your presence, that we might come to know you more and more for all eternity. Father, for this we give you praise because you have given us righteousness and this praise. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.